A warning to our listeners. This series contains discussion of mental illness, suicide, and domestic abuse. Sue was hiding. She came to a small hick town. There was not much going on, and she could blend in and hide there. When she came into this country, she came in to New York City and then wind up in a small hick community southeast of Dallas. It's a far stretch. And she made East Texas home. I really don't believe she killed herself. She was there one day, and then all of a sudden she didn't show up. Have we uncovered a conspiracy indirectly? Too many unanswered questions. She was scared to death. She was alive after they said she was dead. Hello? Hey, how's it going? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Just let me make sure we're recording. All right, so who are we talking to first? Actually, Tony just asked if we could move his call to tomorrow, but another one of Sue's ex-boyfriends, Steve DeVillier, he just got back to me and he's free all day today. Oh, great. That's perfect. Okay, I'm going to call Steve and then I'll add you into the call. Great. Let's do it. Okay, let's see. Three-way calling. Here we go. My name is Stephen J. DeVillier, but I go by Steve. It's kind of strange because I'd just gone through a divorce and was kind of out there single. And I walked into the elder and uh, tapped on her shoulder and said, hello. She's nice. She goes, uh, yes, sir. She stood up and shook my hand. She broke her watch. She got nervous. I was like, are you okay? She goes, yeah, you just make me nervous. I said, why? She goes, you're just such a big, strong-looking guy. I said, oh, my God, Okay. <laughs> I went over to her house that night, and we uh, one thing led to another, and we started dating from there. She was just, just a sweetheart from day one, and you know, I was just going through some of her poems. She wrote poetry, and uh, I've got like, I think it's like 38 poems in total. Wow. From before I met her until right up till she died. It's got the page number in here, and then it's got the date. So, you know, each one says like four, four thirteen ninety one. Monday at 11.15 p.m. That's about the time that me and her split up. It says, you have brought the swamp of spring into the wintry heart of mine, such a joyful song to sing, enraptured be so divine, to bathe in her honesty is sheer delight, a thing so few can share. At peace within, it feels so right, this magical harmony so, so rare. Caution and fear now pushed aside. If gentle warmth still comforts me, faith and trust shall be my God, for I believe you are my destiny. And that was close to the time we split up. Jenna, are you there? I am. Hi, Tony's on the line as well. Hi, Tony. So nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. I would love to start with how y'all met. People that I was friends with back in the late 70s, my ex-wife and I were friends with them. And we were over having a cookout and Sue was at that cookout. Looking back at it, I think she was trying to fit in and find people that she was comfortable with. When did y'all start dating? Sue and I and my ex-wife were all friends. We ran around together. I mean, she actually spent time at my home while I was still married. Her and my ex-wife got along great. I had a very nasty divorce. It was 13 months long. Um, well, I went and knocked on Sue's apartment door and asked her if I could sleep on her couch that night because I had just left the house. And nothing had ever happened between Sue and I. We were friends. And it rocked on that way for, oh, I would say three or four months before something did happen. But then things happened and it went from there. So far as actual dating, that is a concept I've never understood. We went out to eat. <laughs> we, we went to the lake. We skied. We played. She, coming from a, an environment that was not gun-friendly, and people in my part of the world, we have people that are anti-gun. We have people that are okay with guns. We have people that love guns. And then we have people like myself, which are obsessed with guns. I've been building guns, my own guns, for over 45 years. Oh, wow. 
Sue got interested in that. And I taught her how to shoot. And she really picked up on it and she liked it. We started going and shooting together. Uh, I got her interested in competition and she did well at it. She did sharp shooting with those 50 yards, 100 yards, and everything like that. She had a gun to actually, it was left handed because she was a left handed shooter. It was made for her hand. She had trophies and she's like, I don't know what happened to any of that stuff. But yeah, she was, she was a tremendous person. We had a lot of fun. She always said it was love at first sight. She said, as soon as I saw him, I looked into those deep brown eyes and he just looked into my soul. She took me home and the first thing she did is she wanted to give me a, I don't know, it was kind of like testing my personality. She read it and she goes, wow, you've got a great personality. You're a great protector. You're a great, she said, tell me what I was. I was like, yeah, that's pretty much me. <laughs> I protect my children and my family. I know, man. She said, I can tell. I'm not saying anything bad about Sue, but she was very astute in human nature, and she was very good at reading people and then forming herself to do what she needed to do to get where she wanted to be by using the average person's own personal habits. I don't know how you want to put that. She was an hourglass shape. She was 5'3", five, 5'4", five, natural blonde, blue eyes, a solid 36 double D. Like I said, she could turn that English accent on and it would stop guys in their tracks. But she was a sweetheart. I mean, I just, uh, I can't say anything really bad about her. But I understood how she was in a lot of ways. After Sue and I would split up, uh, probably a year or two later, we went out to eat. And I could tell then, this was probably six months before she committed suicide. And I could tell things had changed in her life. She had gained a pound or two, and she actually told me that she didn't like getting older. Now, she wasn't that old when she died, but she was worried about getting older at that time. Her sex appeal wasn't as strong as it was before, and I think she felt like she was losing power because she did have that power with guys. I mean, let's face it. Most guys think with their little head, and... She was able to manipulate that to get what she wanted. Now, I may, I may be naive in my thinking that hers and our relationship was not that way, but I don't think it was. I think it was a sincere, mutual love between us. She made the comment to me one time, probably within a year when she died, she was getting her car fixing to go home and she stopped and she turned around and she looked at me and she said, you know what? I said, what, baby? She said, letting you go was the dumbest thing I ever did in my entire life. And it kind of stopped me in my tracks, and I thought about it. And she got in her car, and she left. And that was the last said about that. I mean, as much as we were together, if she had, was manipulating me or lying to me, I think I would have picked up on it. How long were y'all together? Over 10 years. Wow. And we were friends for way more than that. We were in and out of each other's lives for 17 years. We actually slept in the same house together for many, many years. Do you remember when specifically? I know my divorce started in 82. And it was shortly after that when she and I started living together. But we were friends from like 79 to 82 when we got together. I had a camper that I had out there that I was living in in 96, and I can remember her in that camper. And we weren't per se necessarily together then, but yet we were off and on. And there was a couple times I called her and said, hey, you want to go eat? And she says, no, I got a date tonight. And I said, okay. Sue, I don't think, was ever that much on her own. She might have lived in a house by herself, but she wasn't necessarily on her own. She had companionship. I don't think she liked being by herself. I want to say we met in probably about 87, because me and my ex split up about 86. We got divorced, finally divorced in 88, but we split up in like 86. 
So I, I want to say about 86, 87. And you dated for about three or four years, you said? Yeah, off and on about three or four years we dated. And then I moved to Washington, D.C. For, I, took, I took a job up there. And so I wasn't going to be coming home every couple of weeks. And she said, well, you know, I think maybe we should just, you know, start dating other people. So I was like, that's up to you. If that's all right with you, that's fine with me. You know, I've got some friends, women friends that I'm not going out with. She was, I'm going to, and I want you to do the same. I said, well, thanks for being so honest about it, you know. Hmm. That's the way we kind of ended things. But we still talked after that and, you know, got along right even after we split up. She made a teddy bear out of real actual fur for my wife. She would actually go out and buy old used mink coats and make uh, stuffed teddy bears out of them. She had her own business. She did so much. She was the first person I ever knew to have an internet farm uh, where she farmed out uh, internet time. You know, so she was one of the first internet providers in Athens, I guess you could call it back in the 90s. Anyway, I'm, I'm ram- I like to ramble. So. <laughs> what did you know of her background in the UK? Her background in the UK, uh, she wouldn't talk much about. She told me, she, I saw something happen in the UK, and so my child was taken away from me. They deported me to the United States and gave me a witness relocation program. And so she was up, I think, in Syracuse, New York, for almost a year or two, and then someone came close to finding her. I don't know what she saw. She would not ever tell me. She was scared to death. She was one with that pistol one night. We were laying in, in her bed, and the uh, window was open. She heard somebody walk, shuffling through the leaves outside the window. And she jumped out of the bed, and she said, don't move. And I said, no problem. She went outside, and she had hear her out there. She was out here with the flashlight and that gun, and you could hear somebody running off in the distance. She said, well, I think I scared him off. <laughs> I said, yeah, I think you did. And he was gone. He was true. She was, I don't know, she, she was nervous about, about somebody finding her. As time went on, things never added up. The dates didn't add up. Timelines did not work out. I always had questions whether, was she in Witsack? Was she running from something? What was she hiding from? She left England on questionable circumstances. She talked fondly about her mother and her cats, but she never had the desire to go back to England. And it wasn't that she didn't necessarily want to, it's that she couldn't. Hmm. What makes you say that? Just from things she said and the way she talked about it. There was nothing concrete. Never anything solid that you could put your finger on. And it's like sometimes she would relax in a conversation and she would say more than she wanted to say. But she knew I wouldn't press. And there was a time or two, I can't recall exactly the incident or what we were talking about, but she would look at me and say, okay, we're not talking about that anymore. The story she told me was she was married to a guy that was in the U.S. Air Force that was stationed over there, and she came into the United States with him on a green card. But she had four or five different pieces of identification, whether it be green card, social security card, driver's license, and they all had different names. The first one you look at might have Susan Knight, and then the letter right behind it would say... Susan Coggin. How did she keep up with all these different names? How many do you think she had? I know I think I saw four, I'm thinking five. There was Kogan, Sinclair, Knight. Oh God, there was two other prominently British names in there and I can't remember them now. I know she was married to someone named Inkersoul. And then I think her maiden name was Perkins. Perkins, there's another one. Now that was her maiden name. Inkersoul I think is one of them, but there's another name. There's only two marriages that she actually admitted to me on. One of them was in the Air Force, and the other one was a guy around Athens, Texas. And she married him, and she was married to him for four, six months, and that was after we broke up. I don't drink and I don't smoke. Sue was two packs a day. She drank very little. Every once in a while, she'd have a glass of wine, and that's what made the whole deal about uh, the bottle of whiskey beside her bed 
the night she committed suicide. Between the pills and the whiskey, you know, all that don't add up. Where did you hear that she had a bottle of whiskey next to her bed? I don't think I've heard that before. Either I saw a picture of it or I was told that. I do not remember for sure, but somewhere in my mind, I think I saw a picture. I was in law enforcement for a while. I was a reserve deputy sheriff in another county. I traded guns and shot with a lot of the deputy sheriffs and the cops around Athens. In my mind, I can see a picture of her bedroom with the pill bottle and a bottle of whiskey on her nightstand. They would always offer something to drink. She's no, 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 I don't drink, I don't drink. She just didn't want to mess with Oh, not at all. She just didn't drink at all, really? No, she really didn't. She didn't like the way it made her feel. Did you know her to smoke or take any drugs or anything like that? She did smoke Marlboro 100, I think it was. Uh, she did not like drugs at all. You know, matter of fact, back then I smoked some marijuana and she was like, you can do whatever you want, she's not around me. What about prescription drugs? Did you know her to go to the doctor very often or take a lot of medicine? No, no. And that's what got me. They said that she took a bottle full of prescription pills. I was like, she didn't have any. I mean, she didn't like taking pills. If there wasn't 20 different pill bottles on the top cabinet, then there wasn't one. I don't recall ever seeing her even take prescription drugs. That's kind of bizarre. Isn't it? Because neither one of us were health nuts. It's just, that's the type of people we were. For her to have a bunch of prescription meds, that's, I don't know, that's weird. Unless something happened later on and something came about in her life that I and anybody else around her wasn't familiar with, if she was terminally ill in some way, that would make sense why she committed suicide. But see, that, that raises questions. I don't know what to make of this whiskey bottle story, particularly because we've heard from just about everyone who knew her that she really didn't drink. And I mean, Tony seems to have a pretty crystal clear image of this whiskey bottle on her nightstand. He seemed to think that he actually saw a picture of it. To speak to the facts of this, I reached out to the Athens PD about any crime scene photos that they had. They do not have any. The way they phrased it to me is that they've given me everything they have, which did not include any crime scene photos. And they said, you know, the older the case, the less information they tend to have. It's also not listed in the police report. Yeah, I was just wondering about that. You said, Caroline, that it's not in the autopsy that she had any alcohol in her system, right? It literally says alcohol zero. When I met her, I don't think she was married to the guy. She never said she was. But she was dating or living with, I'm talking about the scum of the scum. And she wasn't with him long, and she got away from him. My ex-wife and I, we lived out in the boonies. And she spent three or four nights to a week with us when she was trying to get away from this guy. She never said, but I believe he got physical with her a few times. And he drove up in my driveway, which was a mistake. And I basically told him, I said, you step out of the truck and I'm going to kill you where you stand. That was my exact words to him. I do remember that very well. Well, my ex-wife, at that time was my wife, she standing beside me with another rifle because Sue was our friend. And you're not going to come on our property and threaten our friend. I know there was one guy she was kind of scared of, and he threatened her one time. We were sitting on our front porch when he pulled up, and he went to get out of the car. And my buddy stood up. He goes, if you don't get that car out of here right now, leave this girl alone. He goes, yes, sir. I'm leaving right now. I'll never talk to her again. But you better not, because we know where you live. We know your name. Don't bother again. Apparently, this guy was a little bit strange anyway. Somebody she knew from before, you know, because um, she wanted me to dig something out of the backyard for her. She knew exactly where it was, but she didn't want to do it. She was going to dig this up so I can get rid of it because he's threatening to come get it. And I dug something up, and there's a bag full of, like, tools to break in the houses and stuff like that, locks, picks, and a whole bunch of stuff that would be for that type of a job. She said, I just want to out of here. I want to go on. And she wasn't sure that that wasn't him outside the window that night. Oh, really? Yeah, because she told me that, like, that's a guy I used to go out with. I want to say his name is John or something. 
I'm wondering if it's, I don't know of a John or a Johnny, but I do know of a Larry, Larry Kogan. Oh, that does have me. I mean, that's, that could be, it's been so long ago. Do you remember the name of that boyfriend or husband or whoever it was? I'm not for sure. I believe his last name was Kogan. Okay. And see, Sue had ID with Kogan on it. Interesting. And Kogan never came to any gathering, uh, cookout, going to the lake. Uh, He never showed up, but yet she was living with him. But it's basically, oh, wait a minute. I think that's how she got down here. Kogan was a truck driver at that time. Oh. Now, this is all starting to come back a little bit. I'm not going to say this is fact, but if I remember correctly, Sue said she met him up in New York, Buffalo, whatever, at a truck stop, and he gave her a ride, and he was based out of um, a little town in East Texas where I met her at. I'm thinking that's how she got to Texas, if I remember right. She hooked up with him somehow, and he gave her a ride, and she came all the way to Texas with him. And the reason I remember that is because he drove an orange truck that they called the Pumpkin. You know, it's funny how your mind pulls stupid details up, but doesn't remember the main things. So does that mean that she showed up in Athens with nothing? Like, she didn't have a car, she didn't have a place? Yeah, she showed up in East Texas with nothing. Wow. Nothing. And she created everything else from there. Now, she used a few people along the way, not necessarily maliciously, but she would use people as, introduce me to them, introduce me to them. Uh, What can I do for you? You know, that kind of thing. Like I said, she was the chief purchasing agent for a large hospital. Not large, large, but how did she have a background to get that job? As far as I know, she did not have a formal education. But y'all don't have any record or anything showing that she worked at the hospital, do you? No, I haven't heard that before. All I've heard is the dealerships, and then I think she worked at a computer company when she was dating Dale. <laughs> a computer company? I'm sorry. That's funny. This was not a computer company. They were getting blueprints from landscapers and architects. She would clean that up on the computer, and then they would reprint the blueprint. Interesting. I actually sat with her one time, and she was showing me what she did. And it was very tedious. But she said, there's awful good money in this. And I said, well, I'm happy for you. Will you hurry up so we can go eat? (laughs) Everybody's got to have their priorities, you know. Both Tony and Steve brought up the computers in her house. The thing that really surprised me about that was both of them had a totally different understanding of what she did for work. Yes. And neither of those were the same as what Dale told us when we spoke with him previously. I tried to check some of this. I talked to an administrator of another local bulletin board. He did know Dale. He did not know Sue or her involvement in anything. I don't know how many computer people there were in Athens at this point. I know that there was a computer shop in Athens in the 90s, but um, it it wouldn't surprise me if Sue had this very, you know, not to be like spyish about it, but like a particular set of skills and then like, (laughs) you know, and then just kind of like kept mining them to make more money. That seems, you know, right in line. Yeah, and that sort of ties into what we heard about the teddy bears as well. Just her sort of buying that business as a side hustle. Maybe she was doing the architecture blueprint thing before the bulletin board system. I don't know. That would put her way ahead of the curve in terms of working on computers, particularly personal computers. I want to talk about Larry Kogan. Mm. Oof. What a subject. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, first of all, how frightening that both Tony and Steve D have almost identical stories about having to chase this guy off when he, like, 
showed up at their houses for Sue. Right. Yikes. I mean, I think the mystery of all the Larry Kogan things we've ever learned about is we know they were married for a very brief time, but also thanks to the state and federal prison records, we know exactly where Larry was for a significant portion of his life. Correct. So I think the timeline of these stories is just what interests me is when did Larry have time to get out of prison and chase down his ex-wife? Yeah, well, so it's confusing to me because the records that I have, and I think there's a lot more that I don't have, um, but of the ones I do have, I don't really think they line up with this timeline. It's all very confusing. Basically, uh, there were sprints of time when he was out of prison in the 80s and 90s. I just need more records to come in before I can figure out exactly when that was. We also have this story that Steve D. told about digging up these, like, robbery tools from Sue's backyard. (laughs) Oh, shit. (laughs) What does that mean? What are tools used in a robbery? He said lockpicks and things of the sort. Okay. But why bury them? Because she didn't... I mean, maybe the burying of them was like a panic moment, do you know? Where she's like... I don't know what to do with these. I'm stuck with them. They probably implicate Larry in a crime. I'm just going to bury them in the backyard, you know. And then when he gets out of prison, she says, oh, God, he might come looking for them. I need to get rid of them completely. And Steve didn't see him when Sue, was he the one that was like, there was a guy outside Sue's house and she went outside with a gun and was like, get the fuck out of my house? Yeah, he thought it was the same person, but he wasn't totally sure. He did say that Sue said, I think that's the guy I used to go out with. Well, go out with is significantly different than married. Yeah. Yep. Good point. Larry is an interesting one because, I mean, like, he, um, I've spoken to one of his ex-wives. I've read a police report featuring another one. And it does seem to me that he tends to be particularly confrontational about women he has had romantic relationships with in the past. So the idea that he keeps popping in on his ex-wives often potentially or allegedly with violence is kind of a pattern that I have seen, but has not necessarily been verified by the legal system. So yeah, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me, I guess, if he was stopping by. I think the fact that it's for for robbery tools is just a really interesting twist. She also, I'm I'm looking back at what Steve actually said, and he said that Sue told him whoever these tools belong to was threatening to come get them. So it sounds like she was actually in contact with, theoretically, Larry Kogan. He was actually calling her to threaten to come get them, and she did not want him over there. That honestly makes a lot of sense, because if you're an abusive person you may or may not actually care about the lock-picking tools that you left in your ex's yard. But you do care about harassing Using it as a reason to continue to contact her. Yeah. She was a personable person. She could talk to anybody. And she got along with anybody. Have you interviewed anybody that had anything bad to say about her? No, I was going to say, when you said that y'all were still friends after y'all broke up and had nothing but fond memories, that's basically what everyone has said. Okay. I'm one of those people, when I leave something or I get away from it, I don't burn that bridge. I call in a nuclear airstrike. (laughs) I wipe it out off the face of the earth forever. Sue is the only person in my past that I remained friends with and could go back at any time and call and say, hey, you want to go get a hamburger? We had a very easy and compatible relationship that we enjoyed each other's company. Now, you'd best not even look in her direction until she has one cup of coffee. (laughs) Same. (laughs) But, you know, we didn't fuss and fight. I have nothing but fond memories and pleasant, pleasant memories of that woman. She is a moment in time in my life that will always be there. She started dating a friend of mine, and he came to me and said, I think she's only dating me to, to be around you. And I was like, no way. You know, but she knows I'm happily married now. You know, matter of fact, she brought my kids to the airport when me and my present wife got married. 
because my ex-wife broke her leg and couldn't take him to the airport. So she dropped whatever she was doing and went and picked up my children and brought them to the airport and put them on a plane as unescorted minors. I mean, I offered to pay for a ticket to come up. She said, I don't think I can handle being there for that. Yeah. So I guess she was still, still in love. It, it breaks my heart because I, don't, I hate that I could ever break somebody's heart that bad. But I mean, I'll tell you what, she was amazing. She was so kind-hearted. I mean, one of my, I wasn't going to go buy my kids Christmas because I was out of a job and everything. And she bought them bicycles for Christmas. And I thought that was the sweetest thing. Because I wasn't going to be able to get them anything. She went and bought them bicycles. I said, let me pay you back. She said, no, sir. The joy on my face pays for everything. Sorry, I'm getting emotional. She was glad that I found somebody that could make me happy. Because she was always worried about me being happy. She was like, well, it sounds like you found the one that you deserve and you love. You better go ahead and snatch her up, dude. Yeah, I was like, well, that's what I wanted to do, but I didn't want to break your heart. She said, it's too late for that, but it's okay. I was like, you're so understanding, you know, she, you're so cool. She was, I don't know, she's the one of the kind, that's for sure. Because, I mean, I love her. I mean, I still love her to the day. I just wasn't, I wasn't crazy in love with her, even though she was to me. I will probably have to say the only thing that I really, really got upset with her about is when I found out that she had died. Athens was a small town, and the word got out, and it was very obvious very quickly that she'd committed suicide. Really? Even back then you thought that? Oh, yeah. Um, and that pissed me off. It was like, you know, why? But no one can understand what was going through her mind. And she was alone when she died, from what I understand. She was sleeping in her bed, in her house, by herself, and her suicide was a big shock to me. I wish she was still here. Uh, I wish she'd been able to work through whatever the hell it was that got her so bad that she made that decision. There's a lot of unanswered questions on my part, but it's just, I think she was unhappy and things did not go the way she wanted. And for a woman that used her looks to get what she wanted out of life, things were starting to slip by her and she was losing control. And I've always felt that's what brought it on, that she was not in control anymore. And Sue was someone that wanted to be in control. When I first found out that she died and committed suicide, I said, there's no way. She's too strong of a person. She's too strong-willed to have ever committed suicide. I said, well, that, was there a suicide note? No. I said, well, that's definitely not her. And then my buddy that she was dating, he said, she didn't want me to tell you this, but she's got cancer. She made him swear that he would not tell me. I don't know why she didn't want me to know, but she did not want me to know. I wish I would have known you know, for this. Try to be there for Because, I mean, they're saying she committed suicide. I, I still don't believe it. But, but I don't know, reading these poems, I, I'm not too sure. I started reading, you know, the back glass poem, and I thought, that's pretty close to the time she died. That's the last one she wrote. I can read it to you if you'd like. I would love that. It's not fair. It's times like this, the darkness crowds me, blotting out the light. I'm cast down in the abyss, where all is black as night. And you can't conceive the isolation of no choice but to be alone. No loved ones or family, I'm completely on my own. There's nowhere to confide or to share my deepest fears. There's no one to hold me or wipe away my tears. It's not fair. I cry in the moon. Hope is 
I'm proud to be over soon. I'm so tired of being, being strong. My strength is slipping away. I can't endure much more. I can't go on this way. But by tonight, 1.30 a.m., March 14th, 1996. I'm sorry, I gave She, I don't know. She just—it's kind of like she, she was hiding from something, and if she drew too much attention to herself, it would cause problems for her. Hmm. What kind of problems? Whatever she was running from, whatever she was hiding from, you know, whoever it was or whatever it was, there was something in her past that she didn't want showing up on her doorstep. We never really talked in depth about it. She had a daughter, and she gave her up for adoption, I believe. But she's, you know, she was very quiet, and she was very reserved when it came to her history. She would give you broad details, nothing that you can pinpoint. Did she ever say why she left? No. Hmm. She wouldn't even talk about it. That's why I came to the conclusion that she was either on the run from somebody or witness protection or something that point. And some little Hicksville town in East Texas in the Piney Woods is a good place to disappear. My buddy that was dating her, they found Sue's phone records and the guy from the CIA called him and said, your number was on her phone bill a lot before she passed away. We are interested in finding out if you saw the body and witnessed that she's actually dead. Uh, no, sir. You look at well, have a nice day. And that's, that's how I actually found out when my buddy called me. That's how you found out that she had died? Yeah, that's how I found out for him. Wow. I missed her memorial service. I had no idea. I had no idea. But she told you specifically that she was in witness relocation. She told me she got relocated to the United States because the family that she was married into was part of royalty of some sort. And she saw something happen. She didn't want to talk about it. She did not want me to be involved. Didn't want me to know nothing about it. She would actually get mad when I bring it up. to talk briefly about this other CIA call that was received. This one received by Steve DeVillier's good friend, Mike, who was casually dating Sue towards the end of her life. Yeah, that stresses me out a lot, actually. It's one thing if one person says it, it's another thing if, if two people say it. Right. The big issue here is that we cannot reach Mike to talk with him about this and see what he remembers. So this is Steve DeVillier remembering what his good friend told him 25 years ago. So that's a really big issue with this story, but it is just very strange. And I also think it's strange that if this phone call did indeed occur, what Steve DeVillier describes is honestly pretty different than the phone call that Steve Barksdale describes getting from the CIA. Hmm. Say more about that. The way Steve DeVillier put it, they seemed much more congenial. When he said, I did not see the body, but I did hear that she died, they said, thank you so much, and then hung up the phone. They didn't just hang up on him. And they wanted a different thing from him, which is confirmation of death versus custody of the body. He is also the source of this potential terminal cancer that Sue was dealing with, which I also don't know what to make of, because we have no evidence for that in the autopsy. We have listed in that letter that her doctor wrote that she had been screened for cancer and that had come back negative. And that was for breast cancer specifically. Yeah, a lot of this information I just don't know what to do with right now. Yeah, it's hard because there's so much of it that we'll never be able to know. Do you know, like we'll never really be able to know if Mike Buckley got a call from the CIA or what they might have said. And just on the cancer thing too, I, I think it's interesting that if she did say it and we don't have evidence that she had cancer, did she think she had cancer like in a hypochondriac way or was she making it up? And if she was, why? 
to me, that could have been related to the suicide thing if you want to kind of prepare people for the fact that you're not going to be there soon. That's just completely speculation, but... Yeah, I hadn't even considered that. According to Steve DeVillier, she told him she was in a witness protection program. If she was in an official witness protection program, it seems highly unlikely that they would have placed her in a place like East Texas where her British accent would have stuck out so much because the goal of witness protection is to have people blend in. But if she experienced something bad in New York or she saw something or or any number of things could have happened, that could also be a reason to change your name, move across the country, make up a resume about yourself, get a job in a whole new field. Like that could be her own version of witness protection of, oh my gosh, I feel like I'm in danger. So I'm going to take steps to create a new life for myself. I do find that interesting because I think that like this sort of New York to Texas chapter is the wiggle room she has to really lie about herself, right? I mean, like one, I have what appeared to me to be records that she changed her name when she was living in New York or was going by a fake name or there was a clerical error. And then, you know, you go down to Texas and you lie about your age, you lie about your background, you say you came over in 76 and worked in hospitals for another 10 years. Like, this would seem to me that there is this pattern of of potentially lying in this one little chunk, especially with Tony, right? As like, how did you get here? Nobody knows. You know, what life did you lead? Nobody knows. When were you born? Yeah. And again, if she was officially in the witness protection program, it would be against the rules to tell people about that, which not to say that people don't break the rules, but technically they're they're pretty strict about never mentioning the fact that you're in the program. Yeah. Yeah, it all is very messy. Also just, I mean, I don't know. Part of me is like, if you are running from something, sort of in the same way that you were just saying, Haley, if you are running from something, why would you tell multiple people? I don't know. I mean, I guess she trusted these people and that's not entirely far-fetched, but like, I just don't understand what the motivation for saying that you're actually in a witness protection program would be instead of just being honest and saying something happened and I had to leave. People in the South look at things differently and you get down here and people have a different perspective of life in general. A lot of people up North think we're a bunch of illiterate hicks. Some of us do prove them right. But down here was a quieter, slower time. And Sue seemed to be comfortable with it. And I think that's why she made it home. I don't know. She she was looking for something. I don't think she really ever found it. She was a free spirit, but I don't think her spirit was ever at ease. But I do hope that she had some pleasure in her life and she enjoyed some moments. I never had any delusions about that I was the only person in her life or I was the perfect person in her life. As far as I'm concerned, we had a serious and substantial relationship. We both asked each other to marry each other on several occasions, and we always turned each other down, whichever side it came from. Uh, The time just wasn't right. But she was a unique individual. She really was. She'll always have a place in my heart and my mind. Yeah. I mean, I will say, I'm just so grateful that, that you agreed to talk to us because you're the longest relationship that we have, you know, that we that we've been able to talk to. Everyone else knew her for a short period of time, but I mean 17 years, that's significant. Well, that's and see that's another reason why I don't want to it's not like I'm thinking I'm something special, but the facts are that we were in each other's lives for that amount of time. And like you just said, there's other people that were just momentary 
And that statement she made to me that day, I remember it very well. And she said it with a straight face. She already had her car door open. It's like she could make a quick getaway. And I looked back on it and I thought back on that at that time. And it's like there was something dark going on, but yet she was trying to deal with it on her own and she did not want to burden me with her problems. But uh, yeah, like I said, I don't think that, I mean, as an individual in this world, I'm a speck of sand on a great big desert. But yet in her world, I think I was significant. I think I was something special like she was in the ring. What do you think happened to her? I don't know. I mean, I've been told by several people from Athens that she committed suicide. They found a bunch of drugs in her body. And I don't know, reading her poetry, that scares me because, you know, you think, well, this poetry was done differently than any other poetry in the book. Why? This is another weird thing that came up, right? I'm sure it'd be interesting to you. Like I said, she never drank. I never knew her to drink wine. And she didn't wear lipstick. There was a glass, an empty glass, a little bit of wine in it, and lipstick on it when I went to her house to get things. And that was a really serious red flag for me. And there was nothing on any of the computers. And I, I'm, I've been for the last 30 something years working with computers, so I mean, I know they totally wiped it. And nobody I know saw her body. You know, the one cop that saw her, one cop, really, and that's bullshit. And to this day, I have no idea where her ashes were placed. I've begged and asked, and nobody can tell me. Well, I will tell you that what we know of her ashes is that they were actually sprinkled over Stonehenge. I think it's either Steve or somebody, or Tony, said something about that she always wanted her ashes sewn over Stonehenge. And I've heard that too, but I don't think they're going to let that happen. Stonehenge is a pretty unique place that they, you're not supposed to even touch anything. That's what I thought too. It seems like you'd need permission. You would need to be some sort of royalty or something, I would think, if, if they didn't let you do that. Do y'all know, Steve, is that how y'all found out about Steve? Or? Yeah, we Steve Barksdale, we've, t- we've talked to him a handful of times. He wouldn't go in the house with me. That was also weird. He was scared to death to go in that house. Have you talked to Steve Barksdale? Yes, I have. Okay. I sat in his office one day because I used to buy insurance from him. I think that's how Sue got to know him. I'm not for sure. I'm going to say within six months of her suicide is when I went to Steve's office and sat down in front of his desk and talked to him. He told me he had called the British consulate wanting to know what to do with her ashes. And he told me flat out that it was five minutes after he got off the phone with the British consulate that he got a call. They never really identified themselves and said, uh, you need to quit looking into Sue Perkins. You need to quit making inquiries about her. And this needs to be the last conversation we ever have with you about her. And it was enough to me that I took it. I didn't know Steve that well, but I think it rattled him a little bit and it concerned him. Uh, he made reference at the time it was either the FBI or the CIA that called him, but he didn't know for sure. And they told him, do not dig into this. Now, are you starting to understand why I'm so curious why y'all are digging into it? Yeah, definitely. One of Sue's very favorite sayings was, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. We're talking about, you know, 25, 30 years ago. Why is anybody interested? There is a lot of mystery involved. There is a lot of unanswered questions. And conspiracy theories, what they are, you know, there's so much, it's like a fortune cookie. You can always put it to whatever's happening. There's always a way of rationalizing it and making it real. To me, I think we were everyday, ordinary people. And to get right down to it, we're just a little bitty cog in this gigantic wheel. So... It just, it strikes me odd. 
Well, that's kind of the thing, you know, just to sort of answer your question is that I think she felt significant to a lot of people, you know, she definitely left an impression. And I think that that's what interests us is that she was just one woman, but her story and the ripple effect that she had in Athens and to the people in her life was significant. And to be perfectly frank with you, I think there's a version of us going down this rabbit hole that reveals something to do with one of those three-letter agencies and something that none of us expected. And then I think there's another version of us going down this rabbit hole where we do find out that she was just, like you said, a, a regular person who just left a really big mark in these people's lives. And I'll be happy either way, but I am really curious to know. Now that I know what I know about Sue and about the people that that were in her life, I sort of have to know, like on a personal, on a personal level. I'm just very curious. I have to know. Well, I do understand, you know, pardon the old phrase, but it's like a dog with a bone. You ain't gonna let go. Next time on Undercover of Night. I am the brother of Susan Pat Perkins, or Susan Knight, or Sue Knight, whoever you like to call her. From what I've heard, nothing adds up, nothing at all. By all accounts, she was extremely, extremely mysterious. She was very artistic and very focused on stuff. She was like a supermodel as well. She's a really beautiful young lady. There's only one person that can answer the questions and she isn't here to answer them. It felt like, okay, this all was leading to something worthwhile. Like we aren't just digging into somebody's past to dig into it. We were able to provide some closure and some connections for people. What are you hoping to learn about Sue? Everything, everything. There's nothing, no stone unturned. This is the Apple Original Podcast, Under Cover of Night. Our podcast is produced by Spoke Media and Castleview. I'm Jenna Burnett, your showrunner. I host the show and write. Reyes Mendoza and Lucy Huang are my associate producing crew. Our researcher, Haley Nelson, digs for paper trails and facts. Consulting journalist Bob Sullivan helps us mine for deeper themes. Will Short mixes, sound designs, and composes original tracks. And Brigham Mosley gives our story polish till it gleams. Our executive producers make our podcast team complete. Caroline Hamilton and Sherita Lynn Solis make sure the trains keep moving. Ted Barnhill and Heather Mansfield-Jernigan got this story on its feet. And Aaliyah Tavakolian and Keith Reynolds keep us constantly improving. If you have any information on Sue Knight, you can email us at infosuenight at gmail.com. If you or someone you know needs support, Go to apple.com slash here to help for resources. Thanks to Tony McConnell and Steve DeVillier for sharing their stories with us. Follow on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening.